course, the Bible is filled with many wonderful promises, even the promises we sang this morning. Love to read the Word of God and to think about all the things that He has not only done for us, but the things that He's promised that He will do. One of the promises that, um, that I think is very well known to all of us, perhaps even a passage of Scripture we know by heart, is found in Romans 8.28, which, which says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. We know this passage. We depend upon this passage. We rejoice because of this passage. And of course, this verse speaks of the good providence of our Lord. Providence is the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature, all to the glory and praise of God. That's the definition. Providence is an amazing miracle, of course. Not the type of miracle where God intervenes in time and space and halts the laws of nature to perform an instantaneous miracle. Providence is the miracle of God's superintendence of all things to bring about His end. It's, if you're like me, we plan our lives A, B, C, perhaps D, but at least C. And God comes into our lives and goes from A to X to Q to J to M We're looking around thinking, what's going on? Because he has a plan. It's a lifelong unfolding of God's plan through every aspect of our lives. I studied chemistry and math, and now I'm a missionary in Croatia. (laughs) God uses all these things. He uses the evil intentions of man's heart. He uses sin sinlessly to bring about his end. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We make our plans, goals, etc., and hopefully we hold them with open hands, knowing that our God is sovereign. And then, as we do that, in His providence, He leads us to fulfill His will for His glory. Now, His good providence, and I want to emphasize it's always good providence, includes everything in our lives. The birth of a grandchild the seeing our children grow up, whatever it is, it includes the happiness, the blessings, sickness, persecution, troubles, trials. It's all His good providence, even though it might not look good in a single moment. But it's always good in its purpose to strengthen our faith, to build perseverance, to bring righteousness and holiness to its fruition in our lives so that we can have a righteous testimony in an unrighteous world. That's why James says, consider it all joy, the highest joy, my brethren, when you encounter these various trials in God's providence, knowing that, and this is the point, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's James 1, 2 through 4. These trials, these difficulties, troubles, challenges, they are the substance of of God's good providence. The joy is in the purpose of the trial, not always in the trial itself. Trials are difficult. They're painful. They can be very sorrowful. However, if by faith we trust God, submit to His Word, submit to His Spirit, to the purpose of His good providence, then His Word and His Spirit produces the desired result in our lives, and that's the joy. But the problem is, 
there's always a problem. When we read the Word of God, there's always a problem, (laughs) and it's us. We find ourselves at point Q when we thought we would be at point B, and the timing just isn't right. The circumstance isn't what we thought it would be, wasn't what we planned on, and we're not thankful, and we're not satisfied, and we're not joyful because of our expectations, because of our timing. We can very easily rebel and resent the providence of God, His timing, His will. Here's the point. All of us can call good evil and evil good when we, have, when we endure or live through God's providence. We can seek another path, another plan, and yes, we can even seek another Savior. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Open your Bibles to Matthew 11, 1 through 19. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. It's a strange passage of Scripture for many reasons. Maybe even a passage of Scripture that's hard to understand. Matthew 11, 1 through 19. Yeah. Matthew 11, 1 through 19. I'm going to break it down this way in an outline. We're going to look at the incident in verses 1 through 6. And then we're going to look at an interpret, Christ's interpretation or the interpretation, 7 through 15. And then we're going to see some very important instruction in 16 through 19. So the incident, the interpretation, and the instruction so that we can live by faith within the good providence of our Lord. The first is the incident in 1 through 6. I'll just read the first few verses now. It says, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? This is an amazing, tragic, sad portion of scripture because we see that John the Baptist's life concluded in prison in confusion and doubt and distrust. He took offense at Christ. It's hard to understand whenever we look at his life, especially when we know something about this man. John was the last Old Testament prophet sent from God to prepare the way for the Messiah to fulfill the prophecy that concludes the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5 through 6 God promises, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I may not come and smite the land with a curse. After that passage, there was 400 years of silence. And by God's grace, he spoke again through John. Speaking of John the Baptist, Matthew identifies John the Baptist as the fulfillment of this uh, prophecy in Malachi. In Matthew uh, 3, 3, we read, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet to prepare the way of the coming Messiah that will ultimately inaugurate the kingdom and bring peace and righteousness on earth. And John was faithful. He prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah by preaching faith and repentance. He called Israel to believe in the promised Messiah and to turn from their self-righteousness, from their sin. 
He proclaimed that Israel was unclean and not prepared to meet their king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He was fearless. He was zealous in, in the tr for the truth of Christ. We see his courage and his zeal when he addressed the religious leaders. These men were powerful. I mean, powerful. The nation, Israel, believed that the Jewish leaders of their time were, th were the living example of righteousness and that they were the only ones who could lead them to, or, or others to salvation. If you wanted to be saved in the first century in Israel, you had to put your faith in the, in the Jewish leadership, the temple worship, and the rules and the laws of those in power. But John knew, John knew that their religion and the good works of man will only damn a man, man to eternal destruction in hell. Therefore, he wanted to shake the foundation of their faith and their self-righteousness. So when they came to the wilderness where he was baptizing, he spoke like this, Matthew 3, 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Not the kind of sermon that wins friends. And certainly John was not a friend of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is John's passion, his courage. In fact, his passion for Christ was the cause of his imprisonment, imprisonment and ultimately, ultimately his martyrdom. Why was John in prison? Just really quickly, Herod Antipas, um, the ruler of Galilee, committed adultery with his brother's wife, Philip's wife. After that, he, he uh, divorced his own wife to marry Philip's wife, with whom he committed adultery. John is preaching the righteousness of the coming kingdom, prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And so, of course, he rebuked Herod publicly. Again, not a good idea if you want to win friends in high places or to keep your head. So Herod exacted his revenge on John through the public humiliation of imprisonment. So what we see in this passage is the man of God in a dungeon, the prophet of the king of Israel, suffering the indignity and shame of prison. I read once about a castle in, I think it's in England, called the Carlisle Castle, and in the basement of this castle, there's a prison cell. And hundreds of years ago, they imprisoned a great warrior, a great leader in this, this small, dank cell underneath this house and this castle. And this great man who has been, won battle after battle and is known for the fields and the land and leadership out there, he was stuck in this cell. And the cell had a window, but the window was too high to see out of. But years later, the way I understand it, you can still see these imprints of his hand on the sill, where day after day he would lift himself up to look out on a land on which he would never again roam. I think this is John stuck in a cell thinking, what am I doing here? I'm a man of the wilderness. <laughs> I eat locusts. I, I preach. And as John languished in this prison... Certainly questions formed in his mind, born out of the disappointment, dissatisfaction, frustration, and confusion. I thought I would be at point D, and here I am somewhere that I can't even recognize. 
John was walking through the valley of the shadow of death and he was fearing evil. He doubted the shepherd. It's an amazing passage. Perhaps he thought it shouldn't be this way. I thought I would be enjoying the glory of the kingdom now. Where is the Christ? Where is the Son of God? Where is the Son of David? Why isn't he not sitting on the throne that I promised? He believed he would witness the judgment, the end of sin, the inauguration of the righteousness, of righteousness and justice on earth. I'm certain he was saying, where is the winnowing fork? Where, where is the axe laid at the root of the tree that I preached about? Where is the judgment? How is this possible? Yet I still, he, he, he still lived in this world of injustice, moral decay, corruption, both spiritually and politically. Sickness, tears, death, sin, debauchery reigned. And he, the prophet of God, was wasting away in a prison cell awaiting certain death. Confusion, disappointment, discouragement, frustration overwhelmed him. It should not be this way. What a tragic and sad and hard to believe end to such a great man's life. This is weak faith. This is distrust. We can't candy coat this. He didn't know, he know, at this moment, he was not trusting in the Messiah. He was at the point of calling good evil and evil good. His way was the right way. The way of Jesus's clearly was not the right way. Are you the Messiah? Should we wait for another? Another who can fulfill the promises that I preached? Another who can do it according to my timetable? What's happening here? I don't know and I don't like it. Jesus did not meet his expectation. John stumbled over Jesus. He took offense that he was in prison and the kingdom, justice, righteousness was nowhere to be found. Rome was still in charge. Unrighteous Herod could imprison a prophet of the living God and Jesus was not sitting on the throne of David. There's a story that Jews like to tell. A Christian attempts to evangelize a rabbi in New York. Tells the rabbi that Jesus is the Messiah. The rabbi gets up, goes to a window, looks out at the city, and he sees corruption, crime, injustice. He returns to the Christian and says, no, no, he is not. Because when the Messiah comes, there will be justice in this world. We can understand this. I mean, we are watching literally in time and space the moral decay of a country, of a world. Where wrong is right and right is wrong and, and confusion reigns and we're thinking, what in the world is happening here? So John sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him one simple offensive question. Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Are you the king? Are you the savior? Are you the son of God? Or should we wait for another? This is offensive. It goes against every single thing that John preached his entire life. It is clear distrust. He is no longer certain that Christ is the Christ, or Jesus is the Christ. So Jesus sends an answer back. Verses four and five. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
He says, hey, John, I think you need to look at my job description again. You need to go to the Word of God, the Bible, and remember what Jeremiah said, what Isaiah said, what Moses said, what, what, what every prophet said. This is so important even for us. Uh, that's what we heard today from, uh, from Mike Riccardi. The Word of God is the power. Think rightly. What does the Word of God say about me? I think my whole marriage is, and parenting is based on... You don't want to condense things down to one thing, but let me do that. <laughs> it's, are you thinking rightly? I can't tell you how many times my wife has looked at me and says, Todd, you need to think rightly. We forget what the Word of God says, and we, and we, and we, we falter and we wander. He says, you need to remember the Word of God, the promises of God, the teaching of the prophets... The testimony of God when you baptized me. When my father from heaven spoke audibly and told you I am his son. Remember the revelation that my God gave you, my father gave you by his spirit when you saw me and you declared by the power of his spirit, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says, my life, my works, my teaching, that is the proof that I am the Messiah. That's enough to quell any doubt, to dismiss any offense. You know, he, this, this verse is a quotation of Isaiah 61.1. that says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Behold, the Lord has anointed, to me, anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Do you know what verse 2 says? to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort who, are, who mourn. I think that John says, yeah, I know verse 1, but you've forgotten verse 2. Where is that? Where's the judgment? My problem is not what you're doing. My problem is what you're not doing. It's the timing that was the problem. It was the imprisonment. It was the discouragement. And he said, I want it now and I want it on my timetable. And Jesus says, it's enough for now that I fulfill verse 1. This is enough. You should trust me. It should be enough. Don't doubt. Don't worry. I am the king. I am the savior. I am the judge. I will fulfill every promise that I've ever promised but I will not do it according to your expectations and according to your timing. This is an important lesson for us to learn today. Our God cannot lie. Our God will fulfill every promise, but he's not going to do it according to our desires and our, our, our uh, timing. And then Jesus says something very important here. And I believe this is the key verse of the entire passage. Verse 6, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. He says, John, I know you're in prison. I know that you're awaiting death. I know it looks bleak. But you don't demand things from me. You trust me. You bow your knee in submission and understand that I am the Messiah. I will fulfill my promises the way, the way I, I choose that's what it means to be God. And you need to not take offense. Taking offense is the opposite of trusting, right? 
So he just says, he gives a beatitude. Blessed is he who does not take offense in me. The life of blessing, the life that glorifies God, the life that submits to the Spirit of God, the life that grows into the likeness of Christ, the life that is mature, holy, endures hardship, that life, that life comes as we trust God's promises and do not call good evil or evil good. That life does, is not disappointed or, or frustrated with God that we're looking for another path or another way or another Savior. The blessed life is not offended by Christ, is never disappointed in Christ. This is an indictment of John. It's an indictment of anyone who would distrust or doubt Christ. Those who are offended by Christ and disappointed in his salvation. Today, we are to share in the sufferings of Christ so that one day we will share in this, the glory of Christ. That's, that's the point. He says, blessed are those who trust very important. Okay, I want to finish this whole passage, so we're going to move on. That's the incident, right? I think that's fairly clear and fairly sad and very tragic. Now, here's the dilemma. What if people mis- misinterpret this? Jesus needs to interpret what they just experienced. His, the, the disciples of John leave, and now he has to explain reality to all those who just saw the shameful act of, his, of John's disciples, frankly. What does this mean? How do we understand this? He did not want them, anyone to misinterpret what just happened. He wanted to dispel doubt, destroy self-interest, quell any distrust that, they, that somebody might have. Somebody might think, well, if John's thinking this way, maybe you're not the Messiah. So he has, to he has to explain what actually happened. And not only this, if John is offended by Christ now, what's going to happen when Jesus is on a cross, dying in shame? What's going to happen when Jesus is buried in a grave? He is now going to interpret the incident so everybody can be prepared for what's coming and understand this whole situation with John. I think this is so wonderful of our Savior to say, I want you to know what's going on with John so that there'll be, there's nothing unclear here. Because John's doubt, his momentary distrust of Christ, will, does not nullify all that he proclaimed about Jesus Christ, does not render null and void the promises or the prophecy that he gave or the revelation he gave. Jesus is still the Messiah. That's the point. So Jesus is going to interpret this for us. Now we need to understand something. Soon, very soon after this event, Herod cut off John's head, and John died a humiliating death, an unjust death. Point is, he died like many other Old Testament prophets. Nothing new here. John's call, God's providential plan for John, was persecution and martyrdom. This is the point. This is providence. This is God's sovereignty. Like those before him, John died never seeing the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. This is the plan of God for his life. It does not nullify the truth he proclaimed at all. In fact, it affirms it. He was, in fact, in truth, in history, an Old Testament prophet. He suffered the persecution of an Old Testament prophet, the imprisonment of an Old Testament prophet, and the death of an Old Testament prophet. Hebrews eleven thirteen. 13. 
all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Like them, John died in faith, and they need to understand that. This doubt, this momentary faltering is not a falling away and does not nullify everything he proclaimed. Jesus wants the crowd to understand this. He also wants them to understand, he wants us to understand, this is the providence of God in John's life. This is the Romans 8.28 in John's life. So Jesus says, I'm going to affirm John's role in his person or his ministry to all of you. And he does this first by three rhetorical questions. He's going to ask some questions so that everybody realizes, uh-huh, that's John the Baptist not some weak guy in prison distrusting Christ. We're going to remember who John really is. So the first rhetorical question is in verse 7. It starts off, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. John's disciples left. Now Jesus is going to interpret, and he's doing this through three rhetorical questions. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? This speaks to John's conviction his unwavering conviction that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the son of the living God. John was not some wishy-washy milk toast. Nobody goes out into the wilderness to see a guy like that that can just give some nice platitudes and puts his finger in the air to see which way the wind's blowing. He says John is not that way. John was a man of conviction, convinced by the spirit of God, by the revelation of God, that Jesus is who he claims to be. Nobody went out to the desert to hear the vacillating musings of a madman. He was bold. He was not a man pleaser. He never minced his words. He never relented because of who was in the crowd. His message was true, and he preached with a conviction that he knew his message was true. And here's the point. Everyone knew it. That's why it's a rhetorical question. Everyone knew it. Uh Uh-huh, yes. John was a man of conviction. So now Jesus says one more thing. He asks a second rhetorical question. This is in verse 8. You see his conviction? Now I'm going to show you his self-denial. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Again, another rhetorical question that's going to show that reminds them of his self-denial. He was not like the religious leaders of the day who were starved for attention. They used their wealth, their influence, and their power to be popular. John was an ascetic. He wore simple clothes. Actually, he wore rough clothes. (laughs) He didn't have just a simple diet. He had a stark diet. Yet he wanted, wanted for nothing except to fulfill the call of God. His self-denial showed his conviction of who the Messiah is. His clothes, his diet, his bed, which is the ground of the desert, revealed his humility and self-denial, his single-minded desire to proclaim only the truth of Christ, to prepare the way of the king through a message of faith and repentance. He lived a holy life as he called everyone to join him in holiness and self-denial. He was a hypocrite. He was a man of conviction. He was a man of self-denial. And the point is, everybody knew it. And they would just nod their heads because it's a rhetorical question. Of course, that's who John the Baptist is. See, he's changing the picture of the man languishing in prison, this doubting the Messiah to remind them the words he preached are true. They're eternal. They come from the Father. I am the Messiah. 
So he asks one more rhetorical question to again affirm who John the Baptist is so nobody misinterprets this, this incident. Verse 9, 9 and 10, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. That's, that's interesting. How can you be more than a prophet? We'll see what that means in just a moment. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. This is his call. This is his role to prepare the way for the coming Messiah to preach repentance and cleansing and faith. We'll talk a little more about this later, but here's the point. Everybody knew it. The fact that these are rhetorical prove, affirm the, the, the ministry, the life, the character of John the Baptist, the character of his words, his preaching, his lack of hypocrisy, his full conviction, his role from God. Jesus affirms that this is John the Baptist. This is proof of his conversion. He's twice a son of Abraham, ethnically and spiritually, saved by faith, the righteousness of God imputed, called to declare the coming of Christ and to prepare the hearts of men to receive Christ. He proclaimed the truth unashamedly. He unwaveringly called men to repentance. He did it according to the power, conviction, and the spirit that was in Elijah. And he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He renounced earthly comfort, died to himself, lived for the Lord daily, and in the end, suffered a martyr's death. And Jesus says, that's John. Man, that's phenomenal. A moment of faltering doesn't mean he fell away. A moment of doubt and distrust doesn't nullify all that he said. And Jesus says, you guys need to understand this. He had to interpret. Then he goes a bit further in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is last in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Earlier he said, more than a... He was the greatest of all prophets. Why? Moses longed to see the Messiah. David longed to see the Messiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel longed to see the Messiah. John saw him. John touched him. John baptized him. John heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my son. John prepared the way, calling an entire nation to repentance. Unwaveringly, more than a prophet, the greatest of all. It wasn't that greatness was inherent in John, like he was just a better man than everybody else. We're talking about his role, the role of being the greatest prophet, because every child of God who in meekness, submission, and faith submits with joy to the providence of God is greater than John. Our position in Christ is greater than John's role of being the greatest prophet ever. Isn't that beautiful? And that's what he's saying. You, because of Christ and who you are in Christ, are greater than John the Baptist in his role as a prophet. You remember, remember I think Luke 10, 20-something, uh, J- Jesus sends the disciples out uh, to, to, to go to different cities to pro- proclaim uh, the truth about him. And they came back and they're all happy and they're rejoicing that the demons are subject to them. And he says, you know, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. What does he say? Rejoice that 
your names are written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. And that's what he's saying here. John, the greatest. And we need to understand that. Don't doubt his word. Don't doubt him because he's doubting Christ and the greatest. But just so you know, anybody whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life is greater than John in his role on earth. Just the encouragement that Christ is giving here, the explanation, the interpretation. But there's still a question that remains. Because if you're in the crowd and you just witnessed what just happened with John and his disciples, the accusation in their voice, in their words, you may not be or you are not the Messiah. There's, and Jesus wants to talk about reality of John. Well, there is still a reality that's glaring, that's staring everybody in the face. Jesus' man, his top man, is in prison. Okay, Jesus, we're going to talk about reality. How are you going to explain that one? So Jesus said, let me interpret that one for you. Verses 12 through 15. From the days of John the Baptist until heaven suffers violence, and, the, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who, has, has, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so what he's saying is, if I can just make this simple, and we're, we're just giving a quick overview so we understand this passage. Those who want to be in the kingdom of God will suffer violence and are violent. That's what he says. We're going to suffer violence and we are violent. What in the world is he talking about? What he's saying is, you don't get to the, you don't get to the kingdom of God without violence. Violence from without and violence from within. That's the way it works. Comes, violence will always be coming in our lives from, from outside. We're talking about persecution, opposition, rejection, imprisonment, maybe martyrdom. That is the violence that will come from without. That's why John is in prison. That's why those faithful before him and after him will be in prison and be martyred. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and imprisoned unjustly. David, the anointed king of Israel, was hiding in caves, running from his enemies. Daniel witnessed the fall of Jerusalem, the desecration of the temple, the rape and pillage of Israel, and lived as an exile in Babylon. Stephen was stoned. John suffered on Patmos. Paul was beaten, imprisoned, despised. This is the life of prophets and, and, and the faithful. Violence. Christians have always been hated. Why? Because they hate our Savior, Jesus Christ. What group, I want to say is quickly becoming, but let's just say what's the group is the most hated group in the United States of America or the world? I would say it's us. You say God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days that he created man and woman, male and female. You can't kill babies. Okay, they're going to hate us. You think that you're going to get to the kingdom without some violence? He says, yeah, John is in prison. He's going to die there. He's suffering violence. That's the point. That's the providence of God. That's Romans 8.28 in John's life, and it might be in your life. Are we ready for that? Our linear plan for our lives? Do we believe Romans 8.28? Even if it involves violence? That's what he's trying to explain. John's suffering was unjust. 
But it's not just violence from the outside. There's this instance that we will experience, I hope, daily. If we are to inherit, those of us who are going to inherit the kingdom of God, the children of God, our whole spiritual life is violent, right? Just think of the words of Scripture. What does Scripture say about our life? To carry our cross daily? The cross is violent, trust me. To die to ourselves daily? It's fairly violent. To fight the good fight? To battle? To beat our bodies in submission? To eliminate any relationship in our life that would stand between us and Christ? It's violent internally and externally. He says, you, you, see a, you see a prophet of God struggling? He's not condoning what John said, just so you know. That was offensive. But he says, you look at what a prophet is doing and you, you, without understanding that this is a violent life, sometimes we falter, but we'll never fall away. And it doesn't nullify the word of God. If a pastor falters, doesn't mean his preaching is null and void. The truth of God stands, and that's what Jesus' point is. John was a man. Greatest role. But all believers are like, are, are, are like him, and we're people, and we can falter. And he does not want us to. That's why I think he's calling us again back to verse 6. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. It's violent out there and in here. (laughs) Don't take offense. Don't doubt. Don't distrust whatever his providence looks like in your life. Wherever you find yourself, trust him. The testimony is true. The life is violent. He is the Messiah. Nothing will ever change this. And he says, do you accept this? Do you accept what? That John is a prophet in the spirit and in the power and in the message of Elijah? He says, you need to do that. Because if you think that his preaching is now null and void, if you think that's now meaningless because of what's happening in prison, you don't have ears to hear. It takes the spirit of God to testify to our hearts that to affirm the man who was a prophet, who was, had conviction, who lived in self-denial, that was going through the violence that belongs to the kingdom. Are you ready to accept that what he said about me is true? This was a call. Will you accept it? It doesn't mean he's the reincarnation of Elijah. It means his message was like Elijah's message. It means zeal in the spirit of Elijah, with the purpose of Elijah, to call a nation to repentance. Or do you just think now it's all over because John has doubted me? This was the crux. Are you going to live the blessed life or are you going to doubt? Such a powerful passage. Such an important interpretation of an incident. And it's important for us on every day of our lives as we are going through the violent path to the kingdom and we find ourselves in in God's good providence and we don't like what we see. Or the pain seems to be too much. Or the timing is wrong. Are we going to believe what John the Baptist said? That Jesus is the Messiah? The Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Or are we going to look for another path? Another religion? Another Savior? 
He says, if you have the ears to hear, if, if the Spirit of God has given you the ability, you need to understand that John's words are true about me. I am who I am, who I claim to be. The blessing is when we persevere in this violence and do not fall to our expectations and become offended by Christ. That key verse is verse 6. Blessed is he who does not take offense in me. Now we're going to go really quickly, this last one. It's the instruction. We've seen the incident. We've seen the interpretation so that nobody will doubt the teaching of John the Baptist or doubt the truth of Christ. And now he's going to give instruction because we need to know that this is the propensity of our own lives. John's testimony stands. Now, what do we do with this? He gives them a parable in 16 through 19. But to what shall generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they said he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus is going to use a parable to teach a valuable spiritual lesson here in light of John's doubt and disappointment. And of course, our susceptibility to this same distrust and disappointment, the same offense. Parable simple, easy to understand. Jesus said that this is the generation in his day. I would say that it's the generation in our day as well like children playing in the street. And when children are playing, there's always one group that you just can't please. I don't care what you do. They're fickle, they're t- temperamental, they're selfish. And these are everyday children playing. They're, they're playing the things they see around them, funerals and weddings, and no matter how hard they try, there's some spoiled brats who are rude and arrogant, and they're just like, we're not going to play with you no matter what. Funeral? No. Wedding? No. Do you want to play outside? No. Do you want to go to the beach? No. Do you want to ride bikes? No. How about video games? No. Do you want to know? Doesn't matter. You can't please them. And that's what Jesus is saying. He goes, this is the propensity of our hearts. Now, even as believers, we want to be pleased by our own affections, timing, desires, plans, whatever. But not by the timing and plan and sovereignty of God. No matter how it looks. Jesus is, saying this, Jesus is saying this is the problem. John came like a funeral, right? calling a nation to mourn for their sin, to fast, to seek righteousness, to be baptized in order to admit their sinfulness, to seek holiness, to prepare for their king. And what did the nation say? Well, he has a demon. He didn't meet their expectations, didn't fulfill their demands. They weren't asking for what he was offering. They called the goodness of God in John's message evil, They were calling good evil and then their own self-righteousness, evil good. Then the bridegroom came, Jesus, and he said, okay, it's time for the mourning to be over. It's time for rejoicing. The fast is over. The mourning is over. We can dance. I'm here. You're a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of sinners. Now, when we say friend of sinners, that's a dear phrase, right? Jesus is a dear friend of sinners. That's why he can save me. But for them to say he's a friend of sinners, they're saying he's one of them. He is, again, they're calling good evil and evil good. This is the world around us. This is even in our flesh after we're saved. 
we don't like to submit to his authority and his sovereignty. You know, when the rich young ruler came, Jesus exposed his sin by asking him about the law. He says, I've kept the law. Jesus said, okay, only one thing you lack. If you want eternal life, uh, sell everything you have and follow me. Ah, no. I don't want what you're offering. It's what John was doing in prison. It's what we can do in our lives. It's what unbelievers do when they're confronted with Christ. And it's horrible. I need to finish, so I'll just say, he says, but wisdom is justified by our our deeds. I think that's going back to verse 6 again. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Are we submitting to the wisdom of God? Are we submitting to his good providence? How do we know? We don't take offense. We don't distrust. We don't get angry. We don't demand. We submit. And we, and we submit to his word so that we can become holy, that we can grow in righteousness, so that we can glorify him. It's very important. Oftentimes I think, maybe John felt this way, but sometimes we do. We look at God out there and we're here. And we forget what he says in Romans 8 at the end where he says he is for us. He's not against us. And we see God here and we're here and something happens in our life, whether it's a sickness, whether it's a child who's not walking with the Lord, financial difficulty, something happens and we think, look what happened to me. Have you ever thought that? Look what happened to me as if God's providence is a weapon that he's wielding towards us and something happened to us like we're victims of God's providence. The child of God is never a victim of God's providence. The child of God is a steward of God's providence. When he gives us a gift, whether it looks like a gift or whether it doesn't, it comes from the hand of a good God for us to use so that we can grow in righteousness and holiness, that we can please him and honor him so that we can be more like his son, Jesus Christ, through the worst of trials. And we call it joy because it's the providence of God. And I'm not a victim, I'm a steward. You know, John was in prison and saw saw himself as a victim. What happened to him? Paul was in prison and he was a steward. He used his time in prison to evangelize the lost, to encourage the brethren, to to write. How do you see your life? Are you a victim of God's providence? Are you a steward of God's providence? Because it's going to mean the difference whether you take offense at Christ or whether you don't. Whether you make demands of Christ or you submit to Christ. I read a quote the other day by John MacArthur. He said, Satan's strategy is to cause us to distrust the love of God, the plan of God, and the process of God. Well, what is the love, the plan, and the process of God? It's his providence. And he wants us to, Satan wants us to distrust it the way John the Baptist distrusted it, the way we sometimes are prone to distrust it because our life is not going the way it's supposed to go. And when we do that, we call good evil, and we can call evil good. If you think the hope, and I'm sure nobody here thinks that, but if you think the hope is the House and the Senate and a Republican in office, you're calling evil good. That's not our hope. Our hope is in Christ and in Him alone. We have expectations of God, and when He does not meet our expectations, 
we are offended and we can begin to look for another, another resolution, another path, another savior that will meet our expectations. And then we call good evil and evil good. But we need to understand Jesus will fulfill every promise. He will do it according to the wisdom of, and according to his wisdom and his timing. And if we expect him to do it, when we want him to do it, we will be disappointed and we will call good evil. And I have to tell you, God does not know how to do evil. He does. No matter what is in your life, it is not evil. It is the good providence from a good God. We know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. God, forgive me if I have not made something clear that needs to be clear, that I've confused anything. I pray for your spirit to iron this out in our hearts to teach us what you would have us to, be, uh, to learn. But the one thing is stands. We know that you are God. Your son is the Messiah. The kingdom is coming. And it's all going to be according to your sovereign plan. Thank you for your providence. Forgive us when we resent it. Teach us to submit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.